So Lisa, a few months ago, I had a listener, a podcast listener actually reach out to me and send me a DM on Twitter, which I rarely frequent. Y'all, let me just be clear. I'm usually on Facebook or LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm a a fleeting pass in the night, maybe ever so often. Uh, But luckily I was in my DMs in Twitter and a listener reached out to me to say that she is a university professor in Australia. And she wanted to talk to me a little bit more because they were trying to create a chief diversity officer position at her university. And I remember her specifically saying, I feel like the U.S. is further ahead on these issues than we are, even after she had done some reading, some studying, trying to pull some things down. And, you know, I need to do better, Lisa, because I am very much looking at DEI from a U.S. lens the majority of the time. But now we're getting opportunities that are more global, which means we need to to get our game together here when it comes to global perspectives on this, right? I think so. And I think as with many things, U.S., um, Um, we tend to be a little bit self-centered and don't think about how concepts or ideas, behaviors, experiences do not necessarily translate in the global context. Um, And certainly being Mm -hmm. from the U.K., there's a different sense of diversity, equity, and inclusion over there than there is over here. So it is an interesting thought. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd love to dig a little deeper into it. All right, let's do it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code feisty for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. Feisty Triathlon is proudly partnered with TryHard. TryHard is the only company offering pre and post swim solutions to provide comprehensive protection for your hair and skin. Its products include swimmer shampoo, pre and post swim conditioner, pre and post swim lotion, and more. All products are made with clean formula and are parabens free, SLS free, alcohol free, cruelty free, vegan, and non-GMO. 
And to boot, bottles are made with 80% recycled plastic. So why don't you swim without compromising your skin and hair? Unfazed listeners get 15% off all TryHard products by going to tryhard.co and using the code FEISTY15. So Lisa, even after I talked to our podcast listener about the potential of creating a chief diversity officer position at uh, her institution, what I thought was really interesting around about the same time when I was doing my own digging around, I found a really great Harvard Business Review article that talked about the question, do, do your global team see DEI as an American issue? And I thought that was such a profound topic to even explore because I've heard more than once, and this is definitely not to sound elitist because simply I don't know, but from those that I've spoken to that work with global teams or have a global presence, it just seems to be that we have these issues quite clearly. um, And there seems to be a profession wrapped around handling these issues in ways that maybe the profession is not there. Um, in other countries. And I just, I thought it was very interesting. You know, would you find a chief diversity officer in this country, in this industry, for example? I don't know. I thought it was a great thing to kind of wrestle with. Yeah. And I do think it's contextual around the country that you're in, right? I mean, if you're in, you live in a country that is really homogeneous um, racially, I, I, I don't even know that said country would even reference it that way, right? Um, Then diversity in terms of race or skin color um, isn't going to be as prevalent, but maybe gender um, or sexual orientation becomes of higher importance. And so I do think that what does it mean if we export kind of our, uh, our being the United States, Mm-hmm. perspectives on racial justice in particular, does it really translate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and does mm-hmm. it, does our industries, corporate, yeah. um, public, um, education, you know, mm-hmm. are they thinking about this in the same way? I mean, I'd never mm-hmm. heard of the term first-generation college student growing up in the United Kingdom. Like it wasn't a mm-hmm. thing. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. in part because at the time higher education was free it isn't anymore it's still massively cheaper than it is in the US but it's not free anymore um mm-hmm. that didn't mean though that there that everyone went to college right that everyone's parents or grandparents went to college just because the cost was covered by the government but that's mm-hmm. a very i i focus that as being very particularly US centric and that mm-hmm. that's a connected concept to, to diversity equity and inclusion yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, we've talked about that before, too, Lisa. You were the one that kind of brought it to my attention that HBCUs really don't exist in the UK, right? So, you know, historically, Black colleges yeah, and universities yeah. are a distinctly American, U.S. American thing. And I've, I've been working on my language, Lisa, about not just saying American about certain right. things because there's a North America and a South America. Yeah. Um, but, you know, given that, that seems to be a U.S. rooted and grounded response to the experience of black people in this country. And so given that, that's what made it really interesting to me, um, even working on a a global project with you, Lisa, and coming to the realization that 
you know, we're working with many countries, we're working in multiple regions, and even the language that we use to describe DEI here in the U.S., there aren't those words in certain countries. There isn't a translation in other countries. And so how can we have the discussion when even the language hasn't caught up with where we are? And, you know, I I think, um, and this is not at all to say that, in my opinion, I don't think the U.S. is ahead on anything. I think we may look as if we're ahead because we have a lot of problems. That may be the key. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we're that far ahead. And, and Lisa's already giggling at, and laughing at me because I'm not in denial. We're, we got some major issues. Um, but that may be performative in that we look as if we're doing a lot when we simply have a lot to clean up. That's OK, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to think about it, because I definitely I mean, I can only speak from my limited and now distant UK experience, but obviously I still do have contacts over there. Um, And they kind of look to the US as, I mean, like aghast, like what the hell is happening over there? You know, like it's, Mm. but it is also a little bit of, um, uh, you are so messed up in the United States, but we don't have any problems, right? It's that, there's a little bit of that going on when it comes to diversity and inclusion, because from mm. from their perspective, it's so egregious. Like the racism is so egregious in the United States that it's really yes. hard to compare the UK experience to that. However, that can lead them down a road that racism doesn't exist in the UK because it doesn't exist like that, right? Well, uh, we, we know that that is absolutely not true. And certainly racism has a very long history in Europe. Um, mm. So... I think that Mm -hmm. is fascinating if you're thinking about hosting a race or a training or a conference or you have international coaching clients, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. How that then translates into your work. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, some of the the companies that we may race with or work with or partner with are what Harvard Business Review calls global. You know, they're a mix of global and local, right? So they have a global worldwide network, but yet they still want things to feel a little more local in its adaptation of how we do what we do. So for example, as I talked about with our uh, podcast listener in Australia, well, a chief diversity officer here in the United States may handle many different identity groups, whereas in Australia or other very distinct locations, a chief diversity officer may also deal with multiple identities, but they may need a deeper focus on indigenous populations because there has been a major um, disenfranchisement of indigenous groups, populations, tribes, et cetera. And so it's a parallel concept I would say there are parallel concepts, whether it's a chief diversity officer or language or being aware of religious diversity and so forth. All of that, to me, feels like very parallel ways to do something globally on a local um, with a local adaptation, um, as Harvard Business Review suggests. And so I do think we have to adapt everything. Right. It's not going to be a plug and play or one size fits all or everyone can do it this way. It, it definitely will never be that way. I don't think, Lisa. 
Yeah, I do think there are some commonalities, particularly in countries with a history of racial exclusion um, in that white supremacy, right? So Australia would be one, obviously, mm-hmm. a France, most likely, Germany, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's, while the manifestation of bias looks different, terminology might be different, and they're all at varying stages of kind of naming the problem and addressing the problem, whether that's through chief diversity officers or, you know, bias training or, you know, kind of reckoning with the history of colonization. Um, there's still that fundamental white supremacist set of systems that privilege white people over folks of color. Um, You know, you strip it all away and that's still there. But in places where there isn't an abundance of white people um, and white people Mm -hmm. are not responsible for developing systems and white people haven't colonized the place, right? Which Mm -hmm. actually, you know, if we knew our history, that might not be that many countries. Um, Right, right. You know, I think that there's, that might look different, but with Mm. Australia, for sure, right? You've got the same, kind of those same pieces around um, young kids, Aboriginal kids being stripped from their families and taken to schools and Mm. in the same way that uh, young Native American children were here, right? It's parallel. That's white supremacy, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And with that, I mean, that's where I think you know, a number of things we can do in regards to making sure that we're not just dismissing diversity, equity, and inclusion work as a U.S. thing. It's going to take a little more uh, mind melding, if you will, if you will, when it comes to how do we make sure that we're applying this and using similar understandings. So, for example, you know, going back to that whole language thing that you were mentioning before, even when it comes to white supremacy, well, we don't even know if the language white supremacy exists in other countries. And so how would we then describe it if there was not a uh, close equivalent, then how would we describe it? What examples would we use of white supremacy that you gave some great ones there? And so given that, how would we do that with many terms? So for example, if you are a, a relatively frequent listener to this podcast, we know that you have at least heard many words like wokeness or gaslighting or allyship, mansplaining, you know, those types of words, those words may not exist in other countries. And so therefore, we don't want to let people off the hook, if you will, by saying, oh, well, that word doesn't exist in my home country. So therefore, the concept doesn't exist. The concept may very well exist. The the language just may not have caught up to explaining it because that's why it's called emerging language. Language emerges or it's created as the lived experience occurs. So given that, you know, I just don't want to let people off the hook, Lisa, because we we might not have found the word to describe certain things in certain places. And so that requires us to do a bit more work, you know? Yeah, I mean... We say this a lot, right, that getting DEI, quote unquote, right, or at least, you know, kind of on the right path involves labor and you have to do it. And if you care about it, then this global lens that we're talking about today also matters. I mean, you think about Ironman or Challenge, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the Olympics, other massive sport organizations that span multiple, multiple countries. um, Mm -hmm. 
what work are they doing really to think about how to translate it? I mean, Ironman in particular, because it's so US centric um, yes. and they recently yes. or a couple of years ago, you know, reluctantly announced their diversity and inclusion initiative. But what does that really look like in Brazil? Right. What does that look mm-hmm. like in China? What does right. that look like in South Africa? Right. They each have mm-hmm. their own independent and separate histories related to inclusion and exclusion in sport. And, mm-hmm. you know, are they making adaptations to their um, mm-hmm. program um, to encourage historically marginalized people in those global contexts to participate in the sport? Right. Because that's, that's right. Not look the same as it looks like in the United States. Not at all. Not at all. And, you know, some of the things I was thinking about, because, you know, we've talked about this multiple times and we brought up uh, George Floyd's murder. One of the things I think we also need to kind of put the dots closer together as far as the connections. So, Lisa, you're making my brain go there when it comes to how does endurance sport really interpret this and apply this understanding to in a global context? Well, Let's say, for example, the majority of the United States and, of course, all over the world was very aware of what happened to George Floyd. Right. There were protests worldwide. You know, it was it really was kind of easy to say, wait a minute, we're in a pandemic. We're watching the news, all these different things. So people are paying attention to the responses to the George Floyd murder without knowing that some of that was connected in other countries. So, for example, Adama Traore, who was murdered in police custody right before George Floyd, and therefore Parisians were really pissed off about this. Um, Part of it is contextual because there's a lot of Black and Arab communities in France that are directly um, affected by police brutality and um, lots of different um, contextual concerns. But if you happen to be a Black presenting individual who's racing in France, for example, and part of the race course goes through a uh, rural or suburban area and someone reads your presence as being Black in France, not a U.S. citizen as an African-American, what does that mean for that athlete? Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's a far stretch. I I mean, am I overthinking it? I don't think so. Nope, nope, not at all. I mean, even when you went to the London Triathlon, right? And you said, yes, you and your friends, basically it in terms of um, Black presenting African-American athletes. We we could literally, I mean, yeah, we did not, I don't think we hit double digits on people who were African-American presenting or African descent presenting um, with darker skin colors. No, it wasn't that many at all. Not yeah, at all. I mean, and, you know, London is actually a pretty diverse city. <laughs> um, and Comparatively, right. Yeah, and so I think that also says a lot about the sport of triathlon. You're hosting a triathlon in a fairly diverse city and there's less than 10 people of people of color who you know appear with darker skin you know like that doesn't mean that you were the only people of color there I suppose but um that is you know so what does that mean in London for the London triathlon and their work on diversity and inclusion are they even thinking about that Right. Well, let me tell you. So I I raced the London Triathlon in 2018 uh, in August. <laughs> it was very hot, July, August. Um, and let me just say, we 
kind of trolled, to be honest with you. My friends that went to race, there were uh, three of us that went to race. We really trolled the London Triathlon on social media because we were following London Triathlon and social media and, you know, pictures were coming up every now and again, so forth. We found one picture out of hundreds that happened to feature what seemed to be a gentleman of African descent with darker skin. And that was the only person that we saw that was even remotely darker skinned or um, African descent presenting. And we trolled them for filth. I mean, we would comment on almost every post. Hey, do black people race? I mean, does anybody uh, race this particular race that does not look white? And it was interesting that, you know, we get there and that's exactly what we found when we got there. Now, I will say, I'll give London Triathlon credit after 2018 um, for 2019 for that race. There was a bit more diversity in social media. But again, you know, it makes you think, am I going to be the only one? Lisa, this even goes back to your point of white supremacy. The mere fact that people of color or if we wanted to go with gender, the mere fact that women, for example, could possibly count the woman presenting athletes at a race, the mere fact that you can even do that insists that there are systems of oppression. It just does. And so when you can count, that's a problem for me. And so I would love to see what, you know, what their numbers were in 2019. And then obviously they had a, a break due to the pandemic, but is there anything being actively done? Maybe, probably not, because if you don't see something as a problem, then you're not looking for a solution. We called yeah. it out as a problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I I, think that, I mean, I don't think the average white Briton um, or British person is thinking um, about race and racism that much, to be honest. Like, and that maybe the same here, right? The average white US person isn't thinking about it um, in their everyday lives. But certainly Mm -hmm. when I have brought up racism um, with family members who are white, you know, they immediately go to the KKK or like, you know, neo-Nazis, very extreme manifestations of racism. They don't think about it in the kind of subtle, learned, um, nuanced way that we're trying to get across here you know in our podcast Mm -hmm. thousands of other people are also trying to help people understand so does that mean that those conversations aren't happening in the UK probably not but um it Mm. definitely seems less of a priority Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well you know so that kind of begs the question of at least two things going on are the discussions happening? Maybe, maybe not. We're leaning towards probably not. And is there nice fill in the blank rampant in the UK or elsewhere? For example, you know, going back to Robin DiAngelo's follow-up book to White Fragility, nice racism. Is there nice racism going on there? Is there nice sexism going on there? Is there nice fill in the blank things? Because I do think you know, I've, I've talked about this before. I despise that uh, trade-off between niceness and kindness, right? Niceness being, oh, let's get along versus the kindness of let's talk about what's happening to Black men or Black presenting men in rural Paris because this is important to us. 
so to me, I, I think that's a little bit of a battle too, is that everything in the UK isn't all touristy. You know, we're, we're, we're not just there to see Big Ben. There's other things going on. And it kind of reminds me of that, you know, that whole ostrich kind of visual that we talked about before. Just because you put your head in the sand, that doesn't mean that things aren't going on and that major disenfranchisement isn't happening all around us. And so, you know, Lisa, this gets me to a question that I can't answer at this moment, which is, you know, are we yet again in a precarious place where we are possibly seen as the radical, uh, overly liberal, over-the-top U.S. DEI people who are making a mountain out of a molehill? When I'm thinking mm-hmm. to myself, there are mountains everywhere. Yeah. And just because you don't acknowledge it doesn't mean that it isn't there. I, I, I don't know. I could see people outside of the U.S. interpreting us as pretty radical on our views. Um, but that's only if you choose to see them there, you know, you can't call out a problem unless you acknowledge it. So mm, I, don't well, know. I mean, with George Floyd's murder and the protests that it sparked internationally, right. So in tens of countries, hundreds of countries, maybe I, it was a lot of countries that had, um, protests around racial justice. So that kind of lends credence to what you're saying is that the U.S. is looked at as one, a leader, right? But also to perhaps that kind of radical, um, you're Mm. you're overreacting and um, making too much out of it. But obviously other countries are looking to the United States, one in shock, right, at the blatant right. Right, right. What's happening, but two, as a leader and following those cues, right? Um, Because those protests around police brutality and racialized profiling and all of those other pieces that are happening haven't been, you know, Mm. well, I mean, I shouldn't say haven't been because I do not watch world news. So maybe they are happening all the time, but I feel like there was something different. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. June, July, August of 2020 related to the way, the way the international community stepped up and said, also, this is a problem here too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right, Lisa, buckle up, go with me on this. Go all with right, me on all this. Right. All right. So given this, and I'm not completely trying to make it seem as if the United States is a victim. Let me not, I'm not going that far. But what I think could happen is that for those of us in the U.S. who understand DEI concepts in a very deep way, or we're striving to understand them in a very deep way, what if there's literally like global gaslighting going on, right? Where Okay, you US US citizens, y'all are just overreacting to everything. It's not that big of a deal. You know, you just got excluded from that meeting. That doesn't mean that there's a microaggression or, you know, someone touched your hair. That doesn't mean abuse or it could literally go there where other countries that obviously don't have the same history as the United States may say, hey, y'all are overdoing this shit. Y'all too much. You're team too much. You're doing too much with it. You've created an entire profession around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Is it really that big of a deal? That, I don't know. I'm just wondering if that could be the case sometimes because 
the very people in other countries that say, okay, U.S. DEI people, it's not that big of a deal, are also turning their heads away from what's going on in their own countries and not to measure, you know, but it occurs. It occurs everywhere. It occurs in different ways, but it occurs everywhere. So are some countries convincing others that, oh, that doesn't happen here? Uh, I would challenge that. Yeah, I think it might be less gaslighting and more scapegoating around this. You can both look to the U.S. as, well, they're a leader, but they need to be a leader because their history is so effed up, right? And we don't have that here. That part. Then then the U.S. becomes this poster child for how not to do it, Um, and right, 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 and right. So other countries are looking at the U.S., you know, in horror and saying, well, at least that's not how it is here, which we know is probably not true. Um, but mm. therefore, so it's, yeah, less gaslighting and more like um, you've got your own thing going on and we don't want anything to do with it because we don't have those issues, right? Because we don't have slavery or we don't have, um, the inequality in terms of income that you have and mm. you know, child poverty, we don't have that to the same degree. And it enables these other countries around the world to just kind of walk away from the issue because we're not that bad, <laughs> you know? Oh my goodness. In, in that terrible, y'all, we, we are looked at as the, the outlier, the, the ones that are the worst off, um, but, you know, it's, it goes back to, you know, all of the rhetoric, mm-hmm. the United States rhetoric yeah. around the great experiment, you know, right, right. So now, I, of course, my descendants were not invited here, but there were many people who were striving to be here. And the immigrants that I honor that wanted to have a better life and a better experience for their descendants. And so this great experience that, you know, used to be called the melting pot. Now it's called the salad bowl. You know, they keep changing the language around it, but why would you expect harmony when you have a purposefully heterogeneous society? Why would you expect all this harmony? It's not going to be that way. You mean as in, as, as in someone coming to the United States, why would they expect harmony or like, well, because I don't know that white people wanted or expected harmony. They wanted people to get in line, right? Oh, of course. No, I, well, and that's the thing. Harmony is, is, a, is a non-issue with white people because there's the, the power that white people carry means that, oh, well, if you don't want to harmonize, you get out or you come under our rule, but there's not an option for you to harmonize or not. You're going to get with this program or get out. So, you know, that to me, I think it's, I don't know, it it may be that the power dynamic doesn't want to acknowledge that, oh, people can have different perspectives and people are going to have different backgrounds and that people are going to show up in different ways. It it just doesn't cross people's minds until it happens that someone can do things in a different way. I mean, that's one of the things we didn't get to talk about it a lot today, but, um, over um, over the uh, Easter weekend, I went down to Nashville, Tennessee to do a lot of things as far as the cultural scene there. Um, but I was fortunate enough to go to National 
to the National African-American Music Museum. And what was really cool about that was exactly what we're talking about here, where there was an expectation that there was going to be a certain type of music in certain regions of the United States, but every form of music was in infused with some type of African influence, whether it was country music, whether it was jazz, whether it was, you know, any classical music, for example, Aretha Franklin sung opera. Okay. Let's be clear on that. And so, you know, given that it doesn't cross your mind until you're the person that wrote the opera and you're like, oh my God, a black woman who sings gospel that I thought didn't have the range actually sung this song the way she wanted to sing it. How dare she? Because I wrote it one way. She's singing it a different way. It doesn't even cross your mind that someone's not going to do it your way because you only know your way and you're only interested or invested in your way. Yeah. And maybe that's the case for many countries when it comes to global diversity. It It's a reactionary process. It's yeah. not an issue until it's an issue. I think that's really insightful in the way to think, you know, lifting out and thinking about that globally. And then I'd also add that the U.S. has got a long history of like muscling in on other countries' ways of doing things and thinking that they're the best, right? So there's also mm-hmm. potentially a, a, a resistance to engaging in DEI conversations with a U.S. lens because yes. um, of that. Sorry, yeah. dogs are going in the background, of course. Um, That's all right. You know, and so I just, I'm also reminded of, you know, how the U.S. exports democracy or exports feminism, right? As though this is the way to do it. So is it also mm. exporting DEI because the U.S. is the only place that knows how to do it properly? Oh, now that's, now that's interesting. That might be the case for us, um, you know, we're the only ones that know how to do it properly. And again, that comes from the roots of we're, we're the country that has had to do it at such depths because we have had such challenges at such depths, you know? And so given that, of course, we're great divers because we've had to go deeper than everybody else, you know, or we've had to go deeper than a lot of countries. Um, So, you know, given that, I think, I think you're on to something there where, yeah, you may, what's that phrase? I'll have to look up that quote, but I'll slaughter it and just basically say that, um, you know, a, a skilled sailor doesn't happen on smooth seas, right? You don't become skillful unless you deal with the challenges. And I hope we're skillful. I would never um, profess myself to be skillful. I just feel like we are well-versed as DEI professionals here on this podcast with facing things head on and not avoiding things, even as messy as they can be. Um, But yeah, I I don't know if we're a global leader in DEI. I just think that we are, we're like a global show and tell of, yeah, this is all the crap that we've been through. Here's a few things of what to do, but here's a whole lot of shit of what not to do. Take it for whatever it's worth. Take, Take this buffet for whatever it's worth. Uh, but yeah, we got a lot of things to show people in both directions, right? Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely some different perceptions out there about the US and the reason why DEI is so important and whether that's good, bad, ugly, or indifferent, right? So I do think, you know, even though we've kind of gone around and around and up and down and left and right here, I think for sports organizations that are looking at global expansion, or already do have yes. you know, connections in other countries and DEI is of importance to you, you do need to put in some thought about what that looks like in those international contexts 
to have the mm. biggest impact that you can have. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Lisa, it sounds like we have a strong hell yeah and a hell no this week. Hell yeah. Hell no. Yes, we do. Uh, did you? Yeah. So what's going on? So I, I kind of heard about the, the books, the, the books and so forth, but I'm like, what's going on with math? People are upset with math books. What's up with that? Florida. <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we go. y'all. <laughs> I feel like that's all I need to say, right? Florida. I, I'm, I'm so sorry to our Florida listeners, but goodness gracious, help, help yeah. them out. Help us yeah. help you. Goodness. So I guess um, in a recent review of math textbooks for um, like K through 12 education, there was something like 130 uh, math textbooks that were reviewed and a whopping 41%, which is about 55, 54 books got removed um, because they mentioned or covered issues that were inappropriate, including critical race theory, including social emotional learning, and some other areas. So, you know, this is math, right? Um, I saw some joke online, it was a tweet, and it was something like, well, gosh, you know, Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, is going to, you know, have a cow when he finds out that math is, you know, deals with non-binary or something like mm. that. Some silly wow. math joke that isn't funny now, me retelling it, but would have been if you had read the actual tweet. So, yeah, it's just unbelievable, um, really, when you think about math and, you, you know, math certainly has bias in it, obviously, and we're not going to get into that here, but to mm-hmm. remove a book because of that blows my mind. Well, and I'm, I'm still not convinced that, I'm still not convinced that critical race theory is showing up in K through 12 books. Now, what they might perceive as critical race theory, maybe, but Again, I'm still not convinced that critical race theory is showing up in K through 12 books ever because that is a legal education concept, not a K through 12 education concept. So I'm not even convinced around that. I wonder if they're misinterpreting critical race theory as uh, or uh, mistakenly conflating critical race theory with just DEI concepts in general. Oh yeah. I don't think, I don't think they're mistaking it. I think they're doing it on purpose. Like, I think it's well thought out, you know, like, Oh, oh there's race mentioned here. Let's throw out the entire textbook. Oh. The entire textbook. Yeah. Exactly. We're trying to address stress, stress and young people because of COVID and how they can do better with their math homework. Let's throw out the entire book because that's yeah. part of the curriculum. Anywho, that's incredible. Yeah. No, that's incredible. To Florida once again. Hell no, nah. hell no. Nah. Well, look, let me give you the hell yeah because it is coming from a surprising source. Let me say, so the hell yeah for this week comes from the Republican governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, who vetoed a bill banning trans children from sport on their based on gender. And not only did he do this, but let's be clear, he wrote an entire five pages as to why. And I'm so impressed. Um, Now, let me be clear, um, Lisa, I think on almost every podcast, I throw my own uh, home state under the bus. Um, uh, The governor uh, went to law school at Washington Lee, which is in Lexington, Virginia. We know the history of Lexington and the Civil War. We know my home state of Virginia that I often 
bash on this podcast. So that makes it even more surprising to me uh, once again. Um, but as I skimmed over the letter, and I cannot wait to dive in a little bit further, but you know, Lisa and I are data people, and that's one of the things that was used to make the governor's case that 75,000 high school kids participating in high school sports uh, are in Utah, four transgender kids playing high school sports in Utah currently, one trans student playing girl sports, 86% of trans youth are reporting suicidality, 56% of trans youth having attempted suicide, y'all. So that to me, I laugh, joke, and kiki about a lot of things, but these data points are critical and crucial and not funny at all. They are extremely serious to me, and I, I would say for Lisa as well. And so given that, we just applaud Governor Cox for bringing this up and being very real and face forward about how easy it would have been for the governor to just go ahead and sign the bill. But, you know, he recognized how the political fallout may occur. Uh, he admitted that sometimes he doesn't get things right, but he wanted to provide a case as to why he did not agree. And hopefully it lands in a place uh, where people can understand, even if they don't agree. But I just applaud what he did, pulling out the data points and caring about youth and their livelihood and especially their mental health, Lisa. So yeah. impressive, Governor Cox. Impressive. Yeah, and we do have a number of Republican governors who have vetoed similar bills, um, but they haven't gone to the extent to justify why in such a meaningful and thoughtful way, I think, right? So that's yes. what sets this one apart. But I think in all cases, the state legislature has overridden the governor veto. Um, mm-hmm. But I might be I might be wrong on that. I feel like, Shauna, yeah. you know, we just say stuff on this podcast and then we're like, you might want to fact check that. <laughs> Well, you never know. We might we might have somebody that's a fact checker that listens to us. Please go ahead, uh, because we always uh, stand open to be corrected, of course. Um, but this one sounds like a solid one. And so uh, to Governor Cox, well done uh, on that uh, explanation. And we appreciate you caring about transgender people more broadly, transgender youth, transgender kids in sports. So thank you for being a leader and a voice yep. around this issue. Absolutely. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. Their main focus, the iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. And Lisa, I did this race in 2016. And I have to say, it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim. But I hear, unlike 2016, this year, they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world. So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. 
email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at dr gold speaks or at outspoken women in try i'm lisa i'm shauna thanks for listening stay unfazed folks see you next time